Good morning. Great to see you guys. We missed you last week, but what a wonderful time we had with the men over on the Gulf Coast. It's a great time of fellowship and ministry from the Lord and getting to connect with the churches in our region. Uh, if you guys were not able to be a part of that, I believe there's messages that are online that we hope will serve you as you start 2017. You eagerly look for God to do something great in this coming year. Uh, we are in a series, if you're just joining us this year and you haven't been participating with us so far this year, we're in a series called Vital Signs. It's an attempt at turning our attention to the vital elements of the Christian life that God uses to produce vibrancy in our walk, vitality in us. And it's a concern that I think most leaders in the body of Christ share today, but I know we share at a local level here, that too many Christians today are doing their Christianity in an unhealthy condition. They're Christians, but they're just unhealthy. And they could use a good checkup. And so part of what this series is intended to do is to give us biblical thoughts and insights into what does it look like to be healthy? And am I a healthy Christian? Not just will I go to heaven one day when I die, but am I a healthy Christian right now? And so our series is, is, a, is teaching on Sunday mornings. It is encouragement for you to be a part of a small group where this is being discussed and applied together with others. And that every person at some point is going to make an appointment to see one of the pastors or elders to walk through uh, an observation of, of how's your health. And so we are loving the fact that we get to do that. And the Lord has kind of directed me a little bit in a different direction this morning. We were going to just go through the basic vital signs themselves. But I want to spend some time this morning addressing something I've called it the mystery of spiritual health and life. It has to do with the fact that the growing that you and I do as Christians, as well as coming to life spiritually at all, is a bit mysterious. There's some mystery in the Christian life. And it's pretty important that you don't lose that sense of mystery. You know, in a, in a very scientific, technological age, we don't like mystery. We want everything to be solvable. We want to be able to feed it in and get something back out that says, hey, I get that now. Well, what if you don't get it? What if there are things about God and things about your life and things about eternity that you're just, you just don't get it? And quite honestly, you're not going to get some of it. Can you live with that? I've seen some people who, when they can't figure out mystery in God, they just abandon believing. They abandon faith as though faith wasn't supposed to have in it mystery. Faith is supposed to solve everything. No, 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 no. Faith is supposed to have mystery in it. And this is very pertinent to us as we try to seek greater health in our walk. Right? If you're, here's some sure signs that you have lost the sense of mystery in your life? How do you know whether you've lost this sense of mystery? If you're here this morning and you're, you're angry about your life, you're angry at God, you're questioning God, 
You're in a season or a circumstance where you're losing hope. You may have already lost a sense of mystery. Or if you are like many neglecting the spiritual activities of your life that bring health. Like right now you'd sit and say, and hopefully you filled out your questionnaire, you go online, right? You fill out your health questionnaire and you know, this is not an attempt for you to go on there and lie now. If you haven't done it, don't go on and lie because I said this this morning. Be honest, if you got to the intake dimension of your spiritual life and you were able to say, I, you know, I just don't read the Bible much. I don't, I don't spend much time in prayer. I don't intercede for situations and things that look impossible. It may be that you've already lost a sense of mystery in your life. Or you've given up on believing that your situation, you personally, can ever be different. You've got a habit in your life that's controlling, and you've tried and tried, and nothing seems to be changing, and you're just kind of leaving that thing in place now. Okay, you may have given up on mystery. It may be a strange cause that's bringing this about. You have lost place of the sense of mystery that needs to travel with us in life. All right, so we looked a couple of weeks ago at this life that comes to us, this first heartbeat, the cardiopulmonary dimension of being a Christian, that all of a sudden our heart spiritually comes to life. That's mysterious, right? Dr. Lindsay Stokes says, we still don't know how it begins, but suddenly it moves. At some point around the 22nd day of the embryo's life, there will be a, a flicker and then another and another. Though the events leading up to that initial spark are still a mystery, we know that these ripples will mature into strong, organized, dependable strokes. The first of two billion that will sustain you over a lifetime. You now have a heartbeat. It is the alpha and omega of a human. The beginning and the end of love, life, goodness. A heartbeat. Could there be a more meaningful unit? Despite its omnipresence, this mechanism is so extensively complex and elusively mysterious that generations of scientists have not been able to answer its most basic questions. How does it start? Why doesn't it stop? Right? There are dimensions in our lives that we travel through, and historically, human beings have had to travel with a sense of mystery as they move along. There's some things about life that we just cannot fully explain. And then that makes sense. We're all finite beings. Some of us may be a little bit more finite than others. We've got limitations in our lives, don't we? There's stuff we don't know. There's stuff that lies outside of what we know that might be very important stuff that might have an impact on how we could come to understand life. But we have limitations in our lives. And in the realm of spiritual life and spiritual growth, there's mystery in this category, right? One of the things I want us to see in this passage we're going to look at today is that there is great hope 
if you look in the right place as a Christian. Now, if you look in the wrong place, you will lose that hope. Right? There's great hope when I look at God and what God does and who he is and his faithfulness and his power and who he's going to be to me. If I see that clearly, hope rises up in my heart. But when you come to visit one of us for a spiritual health checkup, this is the dimension. You're going to have these two things are going to happen to you. On the one hand, you might be discouraged. You don't like where you are. You're struggling with how things are proceeding. And you're going to find in us that we're going to turn your attention to God. We're going to turn you away from yourself and turn your attention to God and who he is and his faithfulness and all that he does. And then this strange thing's going to happen. Before you leave the office, you're going to hear us say stuff that sounds like, okay, now you need to do this and do this and stop doing this and start doing that. All right, so which is it? Well, in a mysterious way, it is both. It is God's doing, and it is our doing, right? With the song we sang earlier, Eric let us in, open wide our hearts now to you. So we sit here and we sing, and we tell God to do something in us. Well, well wait a minute, don't I need to open my heart? To God, doesn't the Bible tell me to pursue, to ask and seek and knock? Doesn't the Bible tell me to do that? But yet we're singing, God, no, you do it. All right, so which is it? Is it, is it God or is it us? Is spiritual vitality in life the result of God? Is it the result of us? All right, this, is, this is a tension in Scripture that we need to be aware of. It's with us in this topic as well. J.I. Packer his very helpful book, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. He says, what causes this odd state of affairs? Well, the root cause is the same as in most cases of error in the church. The intruding of rationalistic speculations, a passion for system, systematic consistency, a reluctance to recognize the existence of mystery and to let God be wiser than men and a consequent subjecting of Scripture to the supposed demands of human logic. People see that the Bible teaches man's responsibility for his actions. They do not see, man indeed cannot see, how this is consistent with the sovereign lordship of God over those actions and every action, by the way. They are not content to let the two truths live side by side, as they do in Scripture, but jump to the conclusion that in order to uphold the biblical truth of human responsibility, they are bound to reject the equally biblical and equally true doctrine of divine sovereignty and to explain away the great number of texts that teach it. The desire to oversimplify the Bible by cutting out the mysteries is natural to our perverse minds. And it's not surprising that even good men should fall victim to it. Now, I understand if in your notes, this next quote is only on the screen. And if, if Evan or somebody will remind me, this next quote needs to be in the notes. So let's get it online in the notes. And there is perhaps some of the wisest interaction on this topic in this next quote. So you would do well to meditate on it. Packer goes on and says, An antimony exists when a pair of principles stand side by side, seemingly irreconcilable, yet both undeniable. There are cogent reasons for believing each of them. Each rests on clear and solid evidence. 
but it is a mystery to you how they can be squared with each other. You see that each one must be true on its own, but you do not see how they can both be true together. What should one do then with an antimony? Accept it for what it is and learn to live with it. Be careful not to set them at loggerheads, nor to make deductions from either that would cut across the other. Use each within the limits of its own sphere of reference. Use each of these realities, these truths that are clearly in Scripture, within its own sphere of reference. Note what connections exist between the two truths and their two frames of reference. And teach yourself to think of reality in a way that provides for their peaceful coexistence. Remembering that reality itself has proved actually to contain them both. When a Christian has put their trust in God and they hope for a good, strong, healthy Christian life, but you ask them about their Bible reading and it doesn't really exist, and you ask them about their prayer time and it's hit and miss at best, then that Christian has jettisoned mystery. And he has forced the Bible to speak only in one dimension. He loves the fact that God is faithful. God is God. God rules over everything. God's will will be accomplished. He loves that in the Bible. And he shuts his life down from you are to do this and this and this and this. I don't know where you are in that. Because if you're on the other side of that issue, you are here in despair. You're reading your Bible and you are wrestling in despair because you have lost sight of the God who does what he said he will do. And now you've made it all about you being a good Bible reader and being in church faithfully and doing everything you're supposed to be doing. And yet you still don't feel healthy. Right? These things have got to sit together in us. And they've got to be nearby to us. Turn to 2 Corinthians with me. Chapter 3. Just alert you to a few things that are going to be here. This, this is a passage full of mystery. There's mystery all over this thing. Where on earth does this first heartbeat come from in the, in the Christian? That suddenly they come to life. And what are these veils that are described here that limit people? And there's a creature out there who blinds people. To, how does that work? How effective is that? What do we do with that? Now, this, there's, there's stuff here in this passage. I'm going to start in verse 12 and read through the beginning of chapter 4. Paul says, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end or what was fading from his encounter with God. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted. Because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. 
Now, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, right? That's spiritual vitality, that right there. That statement is a healthy Christian life. Transformation from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, right? There's something in this passage that keeps me from quitting and losing heart. And it features what God has done more than it features what I've done. Verse two, quick little parentheses. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. By the open statement of truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. All right, back to our point. Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim, it's not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Lord, this, this passage is so full and so helpful. Lord, give us by the Spirit grace to hear what you say in these words. Grace to be affected, grace to hold on to it, grace to embrace mystery in a way that you intended us to embrace it. And we pray you'll do that today. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, tucked into these verses are some some really hopeful elements for us. So if you're here today and you're struggling with hope, we're going to come back to that and I think we'll receive something from God. But let me walk through some of the mystery that's in this passage. Right? Perhaps the most important mystery is toward the end there. In verse 3 of chapter 4 all the way through verse 6, there is this condition that we are in at some point in our life where there's, there's this veil over our hearts and our minds and our understanding. And this passage says that miraculously, God steps in and he removes it. He takes it away. And all in that same moment of this veil being lifted, he, he says it's, it's like light comes shooting into our veiled darkness. Now that's what we have in verse 6. God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. Where does anyone get light into their soul to let them see the glory of God in the person of Jesus Christ? Where does that reality come from? Does it come from inherent smartness? Does it come from reading enough books? Does it come from who raised you? Does it come from what continent you were born on? Where does the light come into a soul to suddenly make, that makes sense. Ah, I get that now. Jesus Christ, he is the image of the glorious God who made everything. All of a sudden it becomes clear. Where does that come from? It comes from God. Right, and it's interesting that, you know, where does the light of the universe come from? 
Who turned the lights on? God said, let there be light. And the universe didn't respond by saying, hmm, let me think about that. Let me ponder you wanting light. Do I want light? God, I'm the universe, you know. You're decreeing something, but do, is that what I want? Does my will need to come in line with your will somehow? Is, did the universe respond that way to the decree of God that said, let there be light? No, it didn't, did it? It just suddenly received light. And so when God looks into the darkened universe heart that I have, where there's no light at all, and he speaks and he says, let there be light. Why is it that I elevate my response to that light as though, well, that's a nice idea, God. And you're welcome to give that a try, but let me consider whether I'm all right with that. Listen, the God of the universe, when he says, let there be light, uh, he, he is not like you and I in our houses. Like when I turn the light switch on, most of the time it comes on unless the light burns out. And then when I turn it on, nothing comes on. You understand God never turns a light on that doesn't come on. So if God's shown into your heart to bring the light of this, that light came and it had its full effect in our lives. I want to say this is what God does. Right? God not only brings us light, but God causes the growth. So if you and I have ever grown spiritually, if we've ever taken a step in cooperation with God, if we've ever had our minds changed and some sense of revelation has come to us, God was behind that. Right? 1 Corinthians 3, I planted, Paul said, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. That's mysterious, isn't it? There's some mystery in here. John Piper says, being converted to Christ, being saved is a supernatural work of God. It is being born again by the Spirit of God, being given a new nature. Listen, do you understand that the drastic difference between that being your definition of what it means to be a Christian and your idea that, hey, yeah, I remember when, I remember when Johnny got religion, man. Yeah, I remember that happening to him. He got religion, y'all use those kind of words. Yeah, you know, back, you know, he got religion, man. What does that even mean, got religion? Well, you know, he used to not talk about anything or go to churches and stuff. This wasn't his life, but then all of a sudden he started doing that. So basically Christianity is just, I used to do this, and now I do this. Do you know how many people believe that's what Christianity is? And the second you do that, well, what's the difference between that and I used to do this, but now I'm a Muslim and I do this? It's just, it's just patterns of behavior, right? So Christians have some patterns of behavior. You become a Christian by doing the pattern of behavior. No. You become a Christian when God infuses a new life that wasn't there just moments ago in you. And if you study world religions, you'll find they don't teach that. They're just teaching a change of patterns of external behavior. The core of Christianity is that a life that just a second ago that wasn't there is now there. When God said, let light shine and this life comes, it wasn't there a few minutes ago. And you know it's not there. He says a new spiritual taste, a new way of seeing an awakening of joy in Christ that you never knew before. 
Jonathan Edwards, he references him and says, in Edwards' understanding, this is what regeneration is. This is what God does in shining into the heart of a darkened sinner. The first effect of the power of God in the heart in regeneration is to give the heart a divine taste or sense to cause it to have a relish for the loveliness and sweetness of the supreme excellency of the divine nature. Did you catch those words? God gives you something that you don't have on your own. Longings for God and interest in him, passions and delights. Suddenly that boring book called the Bible that sat on the shelf collecting dust for years, you read it and it does something to you. You see stuff now. It's interesting and intriguing. And you talk to other people about it. Who the heck ever thought you would talk about the Bible to other people? Why? Because it's gone off in your heart. Why did that happen? Because you determined something? Because God did something on the inside of you that awakened an appetite in you. It says, before regeneration, before God creates a new taste for Christ, money and comfort and ease and security and sexual stimulation and food and success and family and productivity and the praise of men tasted better to us than Christ. And therefore, why would you give any of that stuff up for something that you don't think tastes as good? Why would you do that? Well, you won't do it unless God says to your heart, beat, come to life to me. And suddenly a new life is in you and it has new desires and new intentions. And all of a sudden the stuff that you valued has just got a severe downgrade. And you on the inside want something different. He says, but now something has happened. God has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We have been born again. We have a new taste for reality. The created things that we thought were the fountain of pleasure turn out to be empty. And the one we thought was boring, bloody fools, turn out to be beautiful treasure chest of holy joy, right? Something changes on the inside of us. It is God who gives this growth. And this is true all throughout scripture. How did you get that first heartbeat? Because that first heartbeat informs you how will you get your next one and the one after that and the one 10 years from now, and the sustaining work of God, and the ongoing transformation from one degree of glory to another. It, it's God who gives the first heartbeat, and it's God who gives the ones after that as well. Right? Remember this story of Lydia in Acts 16? Paul goes and preaches. It says, on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to a riverside where we were supposing that there would be a place of prayer, and we sat down and began speaking to the, woman, uh, to the women who had assembled. A woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening. And the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household had been baptized, they were baptized because they had been born again. How did that happen? Well, God reached in and said, let there be light, Lydia. Lydia. Light came into her soul, 
and she saw and came to life. Mysterious? Yes, it is. Because if you walk a few steps further with that thought, at some point, your next question is going to be, well, why doesn't God do that to everybody? You already asking that question? You ought to be. All right, remember this encounter? This is interesting. In Acts chapter 26, this is, this is Paul's encounter with his veil being removed. Jesus Christ comes and removes the veil. The veil got removed from Lydia. Suddenly she saw what she hadn't seen before. Paul is going to experience the veil being removed. In Acts chapter 26, verse 12, says, In this connection, Paul says, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven. Now, Paul not only gets a light in his soul, he gets a light physically as well. Brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you? Make no mistake. Saul of Tarsus, the lights were not on. The only thing he knew about Jesus Christ was he was some kind of a weird cult leader and everybody following him was stirring up trouble and making it hard for people like the Jews to have a religious life. And so it was his duty to go exterminate all them and get this thing out of the way. That's what he saw in his darkness. Who are you? And the Lord said to him, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Rise, stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I'm sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. All right, even more mysterious now. This is Paul's conversion. God steps in not only into his heart like Lydia, we get that dimension, but on the road to Damascus, the man is knocked to the ground has an encounter with Christ. Do you notice here that there's no negotiating taking place? All right, in one moment, the apostle Paul meets Jesus Christ, the Lord of heaven and earth, gets an assignment in his life, and there's no sense here that Paul says, wait, 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 let me think that over. Can I have a couple of days? I don't, I'm not sure, because it sounds like you're going to have to show up in the future to rescue me from the very people you're sending me to. This doesn't sound very good. Can I, can I think about it? Something decreed from God has taken over in Paul, and he is on his way. Suddenly, this is a man with a mission. All right, now if you ask this of Lydia, you ought to really be asking it of this story. Why doesn't God do that for everyone? You got people in your life that you love and that you want to see them come to Christ? 
Do you feel a little shortchanged that they don't come home from work saying, babe, you're not going to believe this. I was driving home and this light from heaven came and knocked me to the ground. There was wrecks everywhere. And suddenly I heard this voice saying, what the heck are you doing with your life? Jesus Christ appeared to me in person and began to speak to me. All right, so listen, if you want to wonder why does God do that to Lydia, don't you want to wonder why doesn't God do that to everybody? All right, so then I walk down the road of, well, let me inject my mind and my thinking into that question. I love people. Last thing in the world I want to see is any of my children or anybody that I love in my life be cut off from Christ and have a, a heavenless, hell-bound reality for the rest of their existence. So would I show up with a bright light, knock them to the ground, freak them out and say, that's not going to continue. Would I do that? Absolutely. In a second, it would have already happened for every one of them. And you'd have done the same for yours too. And yet you have a God who does not do that. Is that troubling? At, no, at, at, at least it's a mystery. God, Why? Don't you pull an Apostle Paul on everybody? I don't have an answer to that. Except the obvious answer is, well, I'm not God. <laughs> One more little thing in here. God miraculously opens hearts. But yet Paul highlights something when he speaks about that event. God gives the growth and he shoves all the glory to God. But he highlights, he does mention that Apollos planted and Paul watered or vice versa. So, so does planting and watering matter? Got mentioned. Miraculously, Jesus shows up and converts the apostle Paul and then turns around and tells him, Paul, I am sending you now to open their hearts. But wait, wait, I thought only Jesus can remove veils over hearts. Only Jesus Christ can do the miracle of bringing light into the soul, right? Yes, right. Paul doesn't have that ability, but yet somehow he is being sent to see that accomplished. Is that mysterious? That human beings play a role in something that only God receives glory for? Nobody's going to bow down. As a matter of fact, when they all, and you know, you, you men were familiar with this, we hung out with Paul in Corinth. When they all turn around and said, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, Paul's like, what is wrong with you people? Do not do that. Do not come running toward me like I did something in your life. I, yeah, I planned it, I went, but God caused the growth. You are alive because of what God did. Yet people are sent on this mission. People are called to activity of obedience. Well, what if Paul just decides, hey, Jesus, thanks for the freak out on the road to Damascus, but I'm good. I'm not going. Right? Don't you ask those kind of questions? Well, what if man doesn't obey God? Hmm? What then? Right? There's some mystery here. I mean, I try to come up with clever answers when people ask me those questions, but I don't know. If man doesn't obey God, I don't know. I'm not in that department. That's the God department. I'm in the lowly man department. <laughs> Here, explore with me in this same passage here in 2 Corinthians, these mysterious veils for a moment. 
right, there's these veils that exist, and they're, they're mysterious. Look at verse 14. Paul says, their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the old covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. And when the veil becomes lifted, they see, right? When we have the veil lifted, we see the glory of Jesus Christ and we want to believe in him. But apparently there's a condition that everybody in the human race is born with this condition. It is a spiritual veil. It is a blindness that they cannot see. They cannot see. What about the nice person who's really helping all kinds of people in the inner city? She's on Oprah last week. She's nice. What about that person? I mean, come on. All right, what about that person? I'm asking you. I'm glad they're nice. I'm glad they're helpful. I'm glad they're kind. You tell me. Spiritually, can that person see? You got to decide. What qualifies for a person to be able to see? The level of niceness to them? How much they're willing to sacrifice for other people in the neighborhood or their community? Is that what makes people see? No, you're reading this with me. The only one who can remove a veil is Jesus Christ. It's a spiritual operation. You can't self-remove your veils. That's mysterious. Only Christ can do it. And this informs how we see spiritual things. Because if I'm blind this way, I look out at spiritual stuff, it doesn't make sense to me. I don't get it. I think I get it, but I don't get it. I stare at it and I come up with it, but I don't get it. It doesn't transform my life. It doesn't make me surrender to God because I don't get it. A few years ago, we discovered that that Drew had a condition in his eye called amblyopia. Common term is lazy eye, but it didn't mean what I thought lazy eye meant when we discovered what it was. Uh, it It is a neurological dysfunction between his eyeball and his brain. So the way the doctor explained it, it's not just a matter of can we fix the eyeball? Can we put glasses on him and help him see in that, in that eye? It's, it's like if we could take a perfectly good eyeball and stick it in his eye socket, his brain can't see what his eyeball is looking at. Because between the eyeball and the brain, there is this neurological dysfunction that it's just blurry and confusing and his brain can't understand what it's trying to look at. That's humanity. Every human being is born spiritually with amblyopia. We look out, we see stuff, we see a crucifix in a church, we see Bibles, we hear stuff, cool stories, things that are morally sound, a God who is a certain way, and yet we are disconnected from it. It's like the life of it is not in us. It doesn't doesn't reach us. And the only way it can is where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty from that. Be be aware in your own life, in the lives of others, this condition exists. You're speaking to people that are in this condition. They cannot just self-see all of a sudden. And by the way, though you should argue, Paul was being sent to preach and argue, your argument can't create the nerves that make them see. Only God can give the growth and the response. And then we find out in this verse as well, there's another veil out there. 
Verse 3, and even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. What is that all about? And so now we find out there's a spiritual being out there. And he is at work blinding as well. Now, if you've ever wanted to paint yourself in a bad situation, here is the reality of eyesight spiritually. Here's the reality. All right, so imagine yourself in a, in a dark room where every ounce of light has been removed from that room. All right, that's the fallen world. Now imagine that you are blind, so the nerves in your body can't see through those eyes. Add to that, there's some being in the room filling the room with as much smoke as possible. How good a job do you think you're going to do seeing anything under those conditions? Uh, if, if I want to see something, then I'm going to need verse 6. I'm going to need God to say, let light shine out of the darkness. And it's going to have to be his will that it shine in my heart to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's my only hope. That's, that's mysterious. The God who wants that for people, why don't he just make that happen for everybody? That's a good question. And then there's, that's not all that's veiled to us. Did you know that some things are veiled because God has hidden them from us? And God has hidden, the record, the record of scripture is that God has not just hidden bad things from us. God has hidden some good stuff from us. God has chosen not to let us in on all kinds of information that he is privy to. Deuteronomy 29. 29 says, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. But the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. So in other words, God reveals enough to us. He doesn't reveal everything to us. You and I don't know everything, and we will never know everything. But God reveals enough for us to do with what he reveals what needs to be done. That's a very important point. So God has chosen to reveal some things to us. What he does reveal to us, that dictates what I do. Not what he's not revealed to me. And I don't have permission to pause with God and say, God, I would be obedient if you would reveal some of the other stuff about this circumstance or this situation. That's not how God operates. There will be hidden work hidden insights, hidden activity from us every day of our lives as we trust and obey God in our lives. Now, let me just take a moment here because this is going to be mysterious to look at these verses. Mystery can be troubling, and it will be troubling as well. But it's in the Bible, and it will make room for me. I don't find these verses as troubling to me as they are healing and helpful to me but I don't know that I've always felt that way. So just listen carefully to these verses. Isaiah chapter 55, verse 8. God speaks to Isaiah and says, My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Can I, can I tell you, that's a reality that I need to get comfortable with, but that's trouble. 
Because when life comes to you and you try to figure out how to respond to it, how to interpret that situation, how terrible this might really be for you in your life, when, when, when that happens for you, you reach into your thoughts to try and figure that out. You've got a shelf of thoughts that you're going to make use of to figure that out. And then God's ways are different than our ways. So then we start injecting, well, that's not what I would do. As a, as a loving father, that's not what I would do in that situation. You stare into somebody's life who's full of suffering and difficulty and pain and a season that won't come to an end, and you look at that and you say, that's not what I would allow. If I could change that for my children, I'd change it in a second. What are you, what are you doing in that moment? You are imposing your thoughts and your ways on an infinite God. And remember, there's a lot that's hidden from us. And God is doing things in our lives for reasons that you and I may not have any access to those reasons. And he has to tell us, my ways are not your ways. Look at verse 10. So this is what my ways are like. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. All right, hold on to this carefully because I don't get that. I don't get that because I can't do that. That doesn't happen for me on the best day of my life. Here's the difference between us and God. When we do things, we try to do them. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to do that. And that's an appropriate thing. I'm going to try that. Because when I say I'm going to try that, I'm acknowledging that I'm a finite, limited creature. So I might discover my limitations. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try and pick that up. But I might discover I don't have the strength or ability to pick that up. I'm going to try and outrun that car. But that car's faster than me, and there's a limit there, and it runs right over me. So I can try, but I might not succeed. Why? Well, because there are factors that I'm not aware of. Something unexpected could happen, right? We're, we're, I'm, I'm planning a picnic. I want to do a picnic for the church, but it could rain on that day, right? You plan that, but something came that you couldn't anticipate was coming because you don't know everything, you're a finite creature, so finite creatures try to do things. Finite creatures encounter conditions that they don't have any control over, like people, <laughs> like people that we live with, people we're in a conflict with. You can try to mend that relationship, but there's not a guarantee that you'll fix that, is there? Because there are conditions that you don't have any control over. Now, how many of you know everything I just described that's true about me, none of it is true about God? None of it. God is the only being who never tries anything. He simply does. 
God never encounters all those factors, right? God never bumps into, oh, you know, I thought I could do that. I intended to do it, but I discovered the limitation in my power. That never happens for God. God never gets in a situation where he was going to try to do that, but some unexpected responses came. People didn't respond the way he thought they were going to respond. Things went the devil was doing stuff. He didn't foresee that happening. You understand? I know you understand this. That never happens to God. He never gets surprised by a piece of information that was out there that, oops, who in heaven didn't do the research on that? Where'd that come from? That's never, ever God. God never encounters something that he can't control. God never tries anything. He simply does. I don't get that. Sorry. I'm a creature. I try to do stuff. See, so what do I do when I look at my life and I try to interpret it and I have my thoughts and my ways and God says, but Keith, your ruler is too short. You measure me with your ways. My ways are not your ways. I am operating out of information you don't have. And I have abilities that you don't even understand. I mean, I imagine God right now is in heaven partially laughing, saying, Keith, that's a, that's a really poor explanation of my power. But, you know, hey, good. Glad you gave it a shot. You imagine this is the infinite God. There are things about him that are just mind-blowingly different than anything we've ever fathomed. I may not have even begun the thought, the first thought in some of the categories that pertain to God and his greatness. So how do you respond to this? Right? All right, open up. If you have a Bible, if you got a phone, open it up in that. All right, listen, I, I, I've got to give you a real sense of mystery here. So just hang with me for a second. Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah the prophet is going to encounter God and he's going to be sent on a mission. And most of us are familiar with this, right? Remember, Isaiah stands before the throne of God. He falls down dead, confesses that he's a man of unclean lips and I live amongst a people of unclean lips. Right? The nation of Israel has been declining for years. Things are bad. And he comes before God and gets a revelation about God and God makes this statement. Look in verse 8. I want you to scratch your head along with me as we read into the story because it is a head scratcher. I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Stop. You're Isaiah. Season of decline. The nation is not in love with God. The nation is self-absorbed, idolatrous, moving away from God at record pace. And God says, who will go for us? What do you think God's sending you to do? Revive the nation. Bring them back to God. Of course. I'm a prophet, right? Who will go for us? Then I said, here I am. Send me. And he said, go. And say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Isaiah, make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. What do you think Isaiah is doing in this moment? 
has got to be going, what? You want what to happen? This, this doesn't make any sense. Why would you want that? That seems like the opposite of what you should want, God. What, what are you doing here? And then he asked this puzzling question. And I said, how long, oh Lord? And God said, until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people. And the land is a desolate waste. And the Lord removes people far away. And the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. Now, if I'm Isaiah, I mean, I've, I've already been freaked out by God's presence and I've wet my pants already. So I'm probably not going to say this out loud, but I'm thinking, I'm thinking this. And, and if I get a few years from this moment, I'm going to really be thinking this. Okay, God, well then, why go? Why go on this assignment to make even more dull people who won't listen? Why even do this? God, what I understand, my thoughts and my ways say, I go and preach, and they respond in repentance. Did we forget this chapter? They come back to you. You make it sound like they're going to go from bad to worse. You think there's a few desolate cities, Isaiah? You think you've walked through some towns where you've wondered, where are the people? They're going to be everywhere, Isaiah. It's going to be desolation after desolation after desolation. This is what God plans to do. Are you having a hard time following that? I do. And then there's a little hint here, and I won't take time to do this. I just want to introduce you to the hint. In chapter 11, remember that stump? You have in your, in your eyes burned out as far as you can see, a stump smoldering, sticking up out of the ground. Hopelessness is everywhere. Humanity is hopeless in this moment. Chapter 11, verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He will judge by what his eye sees. He will not judge by what his eye sees or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor. And this prophecy about the coming of Jesus Christ but somewhere in the hidden knowledge and in the game plan of God and in the blueprints of how to run the universe, God decided, Isaiah, from where you stand, it gets worse, almost looking like totally dead before life comes in that moment. Isaiah, my ways are not like your ways, and my thoughts are not like your thoughts. 
this prophecy by Isaiah gets picked up in John chapter 12. Verse 36, Jesus proclaimed, while you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. That's a shock. He's raised the dead. He's overcome demons. He's taught like nobody has. So that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their hearts and turn and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw in that stump his glory and spoke of him. Now the next verse, if you were reading your Bibles, the next verse would say, nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him. All right, now, what do you, what do, you do with all this, right? How does he put some practical handles on this thing for me? What do I do when I come to revelation in scripture that seems like God ought to want this, but life seems to be doing this? That's contrary to what I thought God would want. I need to cling to Isaiah 55. Right, that's good. Remember years ago, they used to, the speed limit used to be 55 miles an hour. Everybody remember that? This is how you remember Isaiah 55. God has set a speed limit. And Isaiah 55 is your speed limit. Don't try and ask these questions without Isaiah 55. Put a limit right there that says, my questions need to first answer to the reality that God says, my thoughts are not your thoughts. And my ways are not your ways. My ways get done completely 100% all the time. So if you're staring at this and you're going, this cannot be God. This, he has lost control. You, right, right, you're out of bounds. You may not be able to figure out how it's God, but God is never out of control. God is always the one who's in authority with the right to do, never pushed aside by anything that exists. And it will do no good for me to attempt to file some kind of uh, right to know, you know, is that uh, Freedom of Information Act in America? You know, hey, 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 God, you need to answer as to what you are up to with all this. I'm filing a complaint. <laughs> Y'all remember when Job filed a complaint with God? And if there ever was a guy who could file a complaint, it was Job. None of us even come close to filing the complaint that Job could could file. You do remember the book concludes with no explanation coming from God. <laughs> Except for God to say, here, tell you what, Job, I'm going to reveal myself to you and we'll see if you got any more questions. But I'm not going to tell you why I did that. There's mystery in this. God is at work in mysterious ways in our lives. 
I need to be okay with that. Even though I want to force an answer into these moments, even though I try to, well, why would God allow that to take place in my life? Well, it could be because of this, and it could be because of that, and it could be because of this. And you might be guessing right on two out of the three. I don't know. But your, your comfort is not created by whether you're a good guesser, whether you can figure this out. Your comfort is created by knowing the God who says, can you just let me be God and you just work on being you? You know what's interesting in all these scenarios? Humanity knows what to do in every one of them. They're confusing, right? You've got a prophecy given to Isaiah, go and do this. And the prophecy is like, wait, wait, what? I'm going to go do what? And the people are going to respond, how? He doesn't get that. But what should Isaiah do in that moment? Ponder, wait, delay, cross-examine God? Pull out an Old Testament book and question some things? Or just obey God? What should he do? He should just obey God and let God take care of being God. See, this is what J.I. Packer started with when he talked about, do not let one of these cross the other one so that you hear something God is doing, but, but a good God would never do that. He would never burn the land until the only thing that's left is a little bitty stump in the middle of a field. A good God would never do that. Okay, that, listen, you're outside of your pay grade. Isaiah, why don't you just go be obedient? What should these people in John chapter 12 do? Yeah, the, the Son of God stands up and says, hey, while you have the light, believe in the light. But wait, 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 wait. But, but then you turned around and talked about eyes being smeared and not being, you know. So I don't know. Should I believe in a God like that? Should I, should I respond by, you know, can I even respond by faith? He just said I can't respond by faith, so how would I respond by faith? The command to you is believe while you have the light. But I don't understand how God works all this stuff. So wait a minute. So if God is sovereignly in control of everything and, and he knows the future and he controls everything, then why does it matter what I do? Can I just tell you, stop asking those questions. My ways are not your ways, and my thoughts are not your thoughts, and you don't get stuff for a bunch of reasons. The dark world you live in, the fact that, hey, I've removed the veil from you, but you still got some veiling taking place in a fallen world. How about you just trust me and obey me? If I called you to believe, then you believe. That's what you do. You obey me and you believe. Listen, in, in, in the world that we live in, we, we don't do this well. But in, in this passage, tie this together real quick. In this passage in Corinthians, you have all these factors that are weighing into doing ministry. And you have the Apostle Paul saying two things here. He starts this little section in verse 12 by saying, Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. And then in verse 1 of chapter 4, therefore, having the, this ministry by the mercy of God, we don't lose heart. Because he knows that the God whose thoughts are higher than his and whose ways are different than his, he's in charge of this stuff. And so my job is just to be obedient. I just obey God. Because I don't get access to everything God knows. 
Listen, hidden knowledge is not the source of your comfort. Because when you stare at life and it looks like the wheels just came off of something, that I didn't think it was God's will for the wheels to come off of that. I thought I read that in the Bible. You want to find information to take comfort in, don't you? I want God to explain to me why he let that happen. As, as though if God took the hidden knowledge and gave it to you, you, do you really think you'd understand all the hidden knowledge? You're not God. You would take God's hidden knowledge and you would go to work on it with your thoughts and your ways and you'd still argue with God as to whether that was good or not. There's some mystery in this. So right now, what has this got to do with your vital signs? Well, there's mystery in the health of your life. There's a God who is reigning over who you are. And any growth, there's watering, planting taking place, but God causes the growth. God removes the veil that brings about a transformation from one degree of glory to another. You did notice that the veil getting removed doesn't leapfrog you to 100% glory. You don't get to know everything or be completely done. Now, it just it opens up steps of transformation in your life. God is at work doing that. Well, I'm so glad to hear that. Do I, do I need to do anything? Yes, you do. Your Bible reading matters. Your prayer life matters. Interceding for others in their condition, for world missions, for the Lydia's whose hearts are blinded, matters. But Keith, can you explain how that matters? No. But is everybody in here pretty clear that God has commanded you to read the Bible? Everybody good with that? God has commanded you to pray? So this is no longer a matter of, well, you know, if I could just understand how prayer worked better, well, I can recommend some good books for you, but I've read a lot of books through the years on prayer, and I still feel like I feel a thimble with understanding. And I still have that question of, well, God, if you're ruling and reigning in every moment over everything, why do I have to be involved in that? And the response that comes back is, you couldn't understand me if I answered you, but I've already made something pretty clear. I just told you to pray. So you just get about doing that, and you leave me with the hidden stuff. All right, so listen, in the realm of health, God gives the growth. Yes, God gives the growth. And it is also appropriate for a pastor to write out a prescription that says, okay, now you need to do this and this, and you need to stop doing this like immediately, and you need to start doing this. And those two things go together. And somehow they are a part of whatever spiritual health you are experiencing right now. You cannot, you cannot jettison one or the other. You've got to have them both to be healthy. Let's stand up together. Let me just close this in prayer, but I, I, I know I picked some scabs today, so I'm going to ask for God to help us. Lord, I, I thank you for the immediate help of 
seeing our spiritual vitality has mystery in it. That we don't want to default to one side or the other of this and put all of our hope and our actions and Bible reading and fasting and serving and giving life away. But Lord, nor do we want to default to the other side that says God is so great that it doesn't matter what I do. Because that's not how you have made this sound. And God, at the end of the day, we're just called to obey you. And you can handle all the hidden knowledge and hidden workings. Lord, I'm also aware that in this room are people who feel like Isaiah must have felt in chapter 6 as they look at their lives and things look like they're getting worse. And somewhere along the way, they thought if they just did the right thing, they just trusted you. They just followed you. Things would improve. Things would get better. A relationship would be healed. A sickness would be cured. A financial crisis would be averted. And they stand here this morning... confused because they thought following you and serving you would never let them get to this place. God, I pray for your spirit to take Isaiah 55 like a balm into those hearts with your grace to say to them, keep going, persevere, trust me, because my ways are not like your ways. My thoughts are not like your thoughts. And I am at work, and when I'm at work, I accomplish what I'm setting out to do. And just because it's been a long time, or you don't see the end. Everything I'm doing ends with a celebration, a little shoot that comes out of a stump of destruction and proclaims the glory of my son. I'm at work in your life for that glory to be revealed. Remember, I'm transforming you from one place of glory to another. You may not fully understand what I'm doing, but can you trust me and obey me and keep going? God, I pray you'd help us. Life has mystery in it. And answers don't make mystery go away. God, only you can bring us through mystery. So Lord, would you comfort those that are here that life feels confusing? Somehow it must be that your purpose is not happening. God, would you 
help them see the rain comes forth and it accomplishes what you sent it to do. And so it is with your word. You are accomplishing what you set out to do. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, sh should I make a prediction for the game today? One, I predict most of us don't even care and won't watch a lot of it. I predict that first of all. And without, don't anybody stone me for this, all right? Phil, I predict the Falcons. The Falcons will win by 13. Just remember you heard it here first.